Good morning. Let's review chapter 7. There's an argument that the author makes based on the Old Testament. And it's a timeline argument. These, these happen a lot, actually. Anyway, there's a timeline argument where if you think about... If you think about... When do priest events happen? All right, that's what we're thinking about. Priest things, all right? Uh, the first priest fellow we have in the Bible is, is whom? Melchizedek. It's not the first time there's a sacrifice, but there is Melchizedek who is the first priest that we see. All right, so if we think about a timeline, biblically speaking, who is the, who's the last priest or priests that we see? Right, so the last one would be Jesus, and of course the church. And what's the difference between Jesus' priesthood and the church's priesthood? He's the high priest. And so this is very much like the Old Testament pattern of, of the Levites, right? There was a high priest, and then there were sub-priests. Jesus is the high priest. That doesn't mean there are no other priests. In fact, it's it's no longer you know one twelfth of the nation is priests. It's actually the entire church is priests. Okay, but so that's the end of his argument. Uh, if this happens roughly, and this is pure guess, right? If this happens roughly two thousand BC, all right. What you've got some years later, all right? Let's call it. And once again, kind of making up numbers here because it's it's kind of difficult. If a thousand is here. There's a thousand. All right. Boop. If we're calling Abraham, let's just say he's 1400 BC. Oh, excuse me, not Abraham. Moses and Aaron. All right. Uh, we have the Aaronic priesthood. Okay. Moses himself was not the priest. Aaron was the high priest, and it was his physical lineage that would that the high priest would be chosen from. Right? Much discussion of that in the Old Testament. And so this is the Melchizedekian priesthood right here, starting and going this way. What you've got now is Aaron's priesthood. And I think there's, there's a basic assumption in, the, in this chapter, and that is you should really only have one priesthood that links God and man going at one time. All right, that's, a, that's an assumption going on. I think also partially because there should only be one governing covenant. All right? that basically tells people how to relate to their God. All right, That's going to be very much in this New Covenant section that it's going to talk about today in chapter 8. Because those are related in the, for the author of Hebrews. Where there, is, where, you know, where there is a change, there must also be a change of covenant. All right? There must be a change of law when there is a change of priesthood. So anyway, so we have Melchizedek. His priesthood starts here, and we don't see Melchizedek as a person again. All right? Aaron, roughly 1,400-ish, once again, all right, you've got the Aaronic priesthood, all right? And how long does the Aaronic priesthood last? Throughout this whole period, right? So this is the Aaronic priesthood. Okay? Now, here's his argument, all right? Because all of this is just, you know, this is... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right, that's where this this starts. Here's his argument. In the Psalms, all right, there is a promise 
of another Melchizedek, all right? So this is David's time, right? All right? There's a, there's a promise. Another Melchizedek is coming. And the author of the book of Hebrews goes, okay, well, this, this is significant because you can't just say, oh, yeah, another Melchizedek is going to come. All right? And the reason why is because Melchizedek is greater than Aaron. So therefore, if Melchizedek comes again, then he's going to supersede Aaron. How do we know he's going to supersede Aaron? Well, that's his argument at the beginning of chapter 7. Abraham, right here, gave tithes to Melchizedek. And Levi is a descendant of Abraham. So therefore, Levi is inferior to Abraham. And Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. And we know that because the inferior gives tithes to the superior. So therefore, if, as we see the promise here, all right, if a Melchizedekian priest is going to come... This must, by nature, that's his argument, overshadow and replace this. All right? That is his assumption. And so now this is, a, this is tied to the Old Covenant. All right? Now, would they have called it the Old Covenant? No, they would not call it. Yeah. They would have called it the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? They would have called it the Mosaic Covenant because it was the covenant given through Moses. So the Mosaic Covenant is going on, but during that, it says a new high priest is coming, but not according to Aaron. A new high priest is coming according to Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews clearly reads this as, that means this thing must come to an end because this guy, Melchizedek, is greater. And then he identifies it as Jesus. All right. Who is the Melchizedek that is supposed to come from David's perspective? It is the Messiah, and it is Jesus. And so a new priesthood starts at this point. And this is a new Melchizedekian priesthood. He doesn't say this, but I assume essentially what this means is, theologically, what priesthood do we, do we fall under? We fall under the Melchizedekian priesthood, in a sense, right? As a as sub-priest. But the Bible doesn't ever talk about it that way, but that's essentially what's going on. There's a new priesthood under a new high priest, and it starts here. So all that is baseline assumptions, I think, that come out of either assumptions and things that are explicitly said in chapter 7. And so if you go to verse 20 in chapter 7, just as review... And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest. And the next phrase is, after the order of Melchizedek. It's talking about Jesus. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through faith since he always lives to make intercession for, for them. For, indeed, for, excuse me, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this 
once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. Talking about the Mosaic law. But the word of the oath, that the one specifically from the psalm, all right? But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So there's, there's your logical time argument. This oath, I will appoint you as a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever, comes after the law. All right? And so this is ultimately going to supersede at this point. Okay? Now, let's look at chapter 8. And we will see... This will build on that. Now, the point is, now the point in what we are saying is this. All right. So now he's going to tie it up a little bit. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not for man. For every priest, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow over the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. All right, so let's stop and talk about that. Um, let's focus, for example, on verse 5. There's a quote there. Where does that quote come from? In verse 5. Okay. comes from Exodus. Do you remember the context of this? He sort of gives it, right? This is... This is related to the law, and this is specifically related to the tabernacle. Now, how do you read this? All right, how do you read this verse? Do you read it as in, here's one way to read it. All right? God says to Moses, um, do what you see, all right, excuse me, make the, the tabernacle based on what you see. And so then God, I don't know, with a finger draws, here's a picture of the tabernacle in the dirt. All right? Build the tabernacle with this basic setup. That's one way to read it. That is clearly not the way the author of Hebrews is reading it. Right? It's not as if God gave him instructions in terms of, here is the picture, like, like an Ikea diagram or something, of here's how you would draw it. That does not seem to be what he's going at here. All right? Let's read that verse. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The way he's reading this, I do believe... I have no eraser. And the key here is up on the mountain. Okay? If we think about cosmology, all right, in other words, how the earth and the heavens are arranged, 
All right? Where is God? Where is man by nature? God is high. Where do you visit God? All right, God can come to earth. He did in Jesus. But Moses does not get the law on the, on the base of the mountain. He goes up the mountain. Right? Moses goes from here up to here. All right? Which means Moses is ultimately in the heavens. And God visits Moses in the heavens and says, look at the pattern you've seen up on the mountain. In other words, don't look at like a little diagram. Look at the heavenly tent. All right? Look at the heavenly tent. Look at the heavenly pattern that, and base the lower pattern on that. I think that's ultimately how to read it. Because the heavenly stuff serves as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The heavenly pattern. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is a much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Okay, So there's this idea here. And you can see this in, uh, especially in verse five. All right. Now let's real quick. Let's look ahead. Look to nine twenty-three because this is not the only time he talks about this. In nine twenty-three, he says it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things, therefore, with a better sacrifice than these. Okay. So, in other words, the earthly tabernacle, all right, is a copy of this heavenly tabernacle. In other words, there is actually a heavenly tabernacle, not just a drawing. There is actually a heavenly tabernacle, all right? And if you think about the vision of Revelation, all right, that John has in Revelation, there's a heavenly throne room, right? There's a heavenly altar, right? This is what we're talking about here. Or also in ten uh, one, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So there's something heavenly that is up here that these things in the old covenant are imperfect, limited copies of. And this includes the tabernacle, and therefore the temple. And you'll remember from our previous discussion from Hebrews that what is Jesus doing in heaven for us constantly? He's interceding. Where is he interceding at? At the right hand of God, which, where did God sit? God sits in the heavens. God sits if the earthly tabernacle... Where does God sit in the earthly tabernacle? On the, uh, yeah, uh, above the mercy seat, right, where the cherubim are. That's where he stands. All right. If that's a pattern of the heavenly, where is Jesus? Jesus is standing at the right hand of God in the Holy of Holies that the earthly one is patterned after in heaven. So in other words, the throne room of God 
is not way over here, and then the heavenly tabernacle is way over here. They are ultimately one. All right, and Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. In the throne room, yes. In the tabernacle, also yes. All right. And this was supposed to, both from the case of the tabernacle and from the law that was given, supposed to be a shadow of the realities that Moses actually saw in the heavens. So I think that's actually what the author of Hebrews is, how he's reading Exodus there. So let's go back and go verse by verse through this first paragraph. Back to the beginning of verse uh, chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne and majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. All right, so they're both at the same place. Tabernacle, heavenly tabernacle and throne room seem to be coterminal in heaven. In the true tent, the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That is, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. This is a... An interesting logical statement. What's the purpose of a priest? The purpose of a priest is to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it must be necessary for every priest to have something to offer. Now, we already know that he has offered himself. That has already been a discussion. As a sacrifice, that has been done and does not need to be done again. But he also intercedes. He offers prayers. And so that, these are activities that he does. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now verse 4. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. What's that mean? This is like the animals that they use for the sacrifice. Those being the gifts. The focus is not on the animals. The focus is on the priest. What do we think? What could that possibly mean? Now, if you were on earth, he would not be priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. I, maybe if you turn back to the, to the idea that he's not part of the erotic priesthood. Mm-hmm. And how many priesthoods are supposed to be mediating between God and man at one time? At one time, just one, right? I think that's part of the kind of the assumption that's going into it. All right. I also, based on this, it's it's terribly hard to prove when this book was written. This argument to me only makes sense if it was written before eighty seventy, because after seventy there were not priests offering sacrifices, right? Anyway. If he was on earth, if there is a temple and priests are currently performing sacrifices and doing their job, all right? He would not be a priest at all because this, all right? Because this is not the Melchizedekian priesthood. This is the Aaronic priesthood, all right? If he was on earth, he would not be performing his duty as priest because the Aaronic priesthood seems to be around right now. That's not where he's working, though. He's working in the heavenly place. Alright? That seems to be his argument. And this is going to fit within his theology because he's ultimately about to argue that 
that goes away. Okay? Because you really only need one priesthood that unites man to God at any given time. You only need one. All right? The Aaronic priesthood, was it doing a good enough job to unite man and God? Ultimately, no, it couldn't. It is ultimately flawed. Very much the argument of this chapter. All right? It is ultimately flawed. So therefore, ultimately, we're going to get to the point where that one has to go away. But right now, he is not serving on earth. He is serving in heaven. Yeah. I You don't need to make tents for all of these. Just focus on the one. And where did the transfiguration happen? On a mountain as well, right? Is part of the reason if he was on the earth referring to the place that he's ministering? It's not there. It's it's not the copy version of it. It's the yes, right. Here, yes. Right, that's just the copy version. We would still need somebody to be doing it in the real He's serving in the perfect one, the one that God set up as the pattern for the earthly one. Yes, absolutely. Yes. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Well, uh, actually, now would be, well, we'll get there in a second, yeah. So, they serve, talking about the Aaronic priesthood, verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained, and this is exactly what you were saying, Bill, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. All right? Not so much the, fo- the, the fact that he's in the heavenly, but in general. What's going on here is a greater thing to supersede the old, which makes sense. If the old is meant as a pattern to point to the real thing, then when the real thing comes, by necessity, the real thing is better than the pattern. All right? Or the thing that was patterned off of it. Right? But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He finds fault with them when he says, and then he quotes from Jeremiah. And so, this is, this is a place where, when we think of fault, all right, when we think of fault, we think you're at fault, therefore you've done something bad. Right? I don't think that's not the point here. All right. The point is not that the old covenant was sinful. All right. Uh, The point is that it wasn't perfect. That's the only point there. That it was a copy of the real thing. All right. If someone comes and makes a what seems to be a perfect copy of a Monet, 
with their own hand and their own painting. All right? Is it worth as much as the Monet? No, it's not. All right? It is just a copy of the, that original. Um, all copies are ultimately lesser, and that's the argument here. Now, let's talk about that heavenly thing and the Platonic thing. So, it's very common when you think of, um, when you read this, to go Plato. People very commonly do it. And one of Plato's ideas is entirely consistent with this notion. So if you are, in fact, a, this notion that, um, of the heavenly, of the earthly copy of the heavenly, yeah. Um, one of Plato's really big ideas was his notion of forms. And so you're going to totally see this in early Christian literature, uh, and you'll see it today when people talk about these things. And so if we think about it, let's ignore Ignore Bible for a second and think about Plato, all right? So Plato, Plato lived on earth or in heaven? He lived on earth, so he's, he is down in the uh, lesser area. Or really, what's really ma- what matters here is not Plato, but Socrates, because he usually gives his ideas in the voice of Socrates. At the very least, always in the voice of somebody else. And one of his basic arguments was that whatever you see today, all right, is a copy, a representation of what is called a form. So if you think about a, here's a stick figure horse, all right, you've got this stick figure horse, all right, if this is the form, all right, and that's what he called them, these, these perfect things, all right, these perfect things are called the forms, all right, if you want to think about anything, a horse, a chair, all right, there is the thing called a form, and then there is the copy of the thing. All right, here is our stick figure horse. By necessity, the forms are purer and better than the copies of those things. He would also take this to ethics, all right, and math, all right, justice, all right, perfect circle. Can, can any of us draw a perfect circle? No, none of us can draw a perfect circle like this one. Clearly not a perfect circle, but not terrible, all right? When you come down here into the realm of the, um, of the reality, all right, you've got a much worse circle here than what is the perfect circle there. And so Plato, totally several hundred years before this notion, had this notion that there are copies of heavenly things. This is the reality. And everything down here is an imperfect shadow or copy. Yeah. Computers cannot make perfect circles because computers are made of pixels, at least the displays. Uh, and so, therefore, they only appear to be perfect circles because of your imperfect eyes. Oh, okay. Yes. So, they also cannot make perfect circles. A perfect circle is just like a pure mathematical idea, which forms. But it exists. But it exists. It is a real thing in Plato, for sure. And his basic notion is if you think of a cave, all right, here's a cave in, here's the outside world, okay? Here's Plato's idea. Imagine um, you are here, all right? The reality is out here. You're here. Well, the reality is back here, all right? So what's happening is there's like a fire right here, all right? Imagine a fire on this pedestal, all right? And you're here. And you're facing and looking this way. All right? You never turn around. You're always looking this way. And then there's somebody else behind you or something that is holding up like a picture, like a stick figure, or or, excuse me, the real horse right here. 
Do you look at the horse? No. You're looking this way. You see the shadow of the horse against the wall. And what Plato's analogy is, what we need to do is stop looking at the wall and turn around and look at the real things and eventually leave the cave. That's Plato. Is the author of Hebrews reading Plato? And the answer is, it's possible. Yeah. And it's not, but it's not necessary. Actually, if you take the... um, if you look, for example, in the Septuagint, you know there's books in the Septuagint that are not in the, in the Bible, right? One of them, called the Wisdom of Solomon, which was probably written in the first century B.C., explicitly talked about this notion. All right? You've also got Ezekiel, for example, in chapters 40 through 48, where Ezekiel goes onto a mountain. God takes him there in a vision, and he sees a new copy of the temple. All right? He's seeing, in other words... He's not on earth. He's on a mountain seeing a copy of the temple. Is he seeing the heavenly temple? So you've got this idea that there is something other than the physical temple. So the author of Hebrews does not need to be referencing Plato at all. Um, Plato's ideas are very consistent here. But you will see lots of people basically saying, well, the reason why Plato had these ideas is Plato had a copy of the Old Testament. Early Christians will totally argue that all of the time. Um, and so that's why Plato is actually kind of good and kind of right a lot, because he had a copy of the Old Testament. He had a copy of Moses. When did Plato so. come around? Uh, Socrates died in 399, and so Plato would be writing shortly thereafter. He was, he was a student of Socrates, so he would have been early, uh, late uh, 5th century. Were manuscripts of the Old Testament more common around then, or are they still hard to get? Uh, Nobody knows, but also the argument that he had the uh, Bible is clearly bogus. Yeah, no, nobody today would argue, yes, Socrates was totally reading the Old Testament. Um, but it was something that people did. So this idea that there is a heavenly reality and that the, what you see on the physical plane is a copy of that heavenly reality is a very Platonic thing. But Plato took it to everything. And Christianity does not. All right? We do not say that when we see a horse, it is a copy of the perfect horse that God created in heaven. We don't believe that at all. all right? We are not truly Platonic. We do not follow Plato in this. Uh, but what Plato taught is, at least in this aspect, common. So you will see in commentaries often people say that this is a Platonic idea. Uh, it really doesn't need to be, frankly, because there are Old Testament or intertestamental Jewish antecedents to it. Um, there's also more that you can find in other Jewish things. So, just in case that ever comes up. Any questions on that? Was that weird? It's kind of weird because, like, 30 years ago, whenever I first was exposed to Plato, and then the next time I read my Bible, I read Hebrew, I was crazy. It's Plato. Yeah. 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 Because ultimately, I mean, this idea of Plato's led him to a, a kind of monotheism, which is another thing we go, yep, agree with that, right? Um, but still, clearly not, this is not Platonic, because it is not Christian theology to say that everything in this world is an image of the true thing. 
No, the world, God made the world as a separate thing from the heavens. And we are supposed to subdue it, right? Not everything is meant as a pattern. The tabernacle was clearly meant as a pattern. The Bible teaches that, right? That doesn't teach necessarily the rest is a perfect pattern. There There is supposed to be two realms that are supposed to be governed by righteous beings. The heavens are supposed to be governed by righteous angels. And the earth is supposed to be governed by righteous humans. That is God's intention. But they are not exact mirror images. That is ultimately unbiblical. Let's continue the argument. All right? Because he's, he's been talking so much about the, the uh, priesthood side of things, right? Now he is really kind of moving on, all right? Because we see this here in that he quotes Jeremiah. And now when you, when you start looking at verse 6 and verse 7, he's starting to talk, talk about not priesthood, but covenant as a whole, all right? And if we understand, what's the difference between priesthood and covenant? If we draw ourselves a good Venn diagram, all right? Who doesn't like a good Venn diagram? Venn diagrams are meant to show relationships between things. So if this is the covenant, all right? All right, the priesthood is within the covenant. The priesthood, how it works is a part of the covenant. The regulations, all right? are all a part of that covenant. And he makes the argument in here, where you have a change of priesthood, you have a change of covenant, because this is an essential part of the nature of the covenant. That's one of the arguments in the book of Hebrews. We've had a change of priesthood. Now, he's going to go on and say, we're going to need a new covenant. For he finds fault with them in verse 8, when he says, and this is a very long quotation from the book of Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I brought them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Clearly a reference to the Mosaic covenant, right? For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is another verse that makes me lean towards that this was written before AD 70. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. All right? Ready to vanish away. That means it hasn't quite vanished away. And so there's sort of two covenants going on. The other one, one of them needs to vanish away, and it is ready to do so. All right? And if a covenant very much has to do with priesthood, all right, how do you get rid of a priesthood? You annihilate the place that they do their priesthood work. And so that happened. And so I think ultimately he's talking about priesthood. Now he's switching in general, right, to a 
larger covenantal talk, topic, not just priesthood, but talk about covenant. As you can see from the next verse. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Just go read the law. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. All right, so let's, once again, got to have pictures. All right, got to have pictures. There is a, what he said, there is a holy place. All right, there's a holy place. And inside the holy place is a most holy place. Ark of the Covenant is here. You can offer incense here as well, right? And the entrance, of course, is from the east, as we've discussed previously. All right, so here's the picture. All right, we've got a holy place, and inside that is a most holy place. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. All right, so priests, go here. Who doesn't go here? Everyone who is not a priest, which would be the majority of the people, all right? They can't go there. They do not belong here. The priests go there. But into the second only, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, this is crazy and interesting. Not crazy in a weird way, but just like a kind of a blow-your-mind argument, I think. Or blow your mind statement. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates. By this, pattern. Okay? Priests are out here. The high priest can come here. But only him. It is extremely limited. Alright? Not just the majority can't. No one can except for one person once a year. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates. By this pattern. That the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. This is the holy place. HP stands for both high priest and the, the most holy place. All right? And so what he's saying is you can't get here when this exists. This separation, this priestly separation of the people from the most highly place. All right? Here's the people. Okay, people are all out there. They can't come in. The way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink in various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Not referring to the Protestant Reformation, just to be clear. All right. 
Sorry. Let's, let's read again verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. So in other words, there's something that separates the people from the holy place. The people can't come into the holy place because of what? This whole thing separates the people from here. Now, he'll get more into this, all right? But here's what's different from a how reality is set up perspective in the New Covenant. Okay, In the Old Covenant, the people could not come here. In the New Covenant, because he says, this right here must go away. Alright? Because in the New Covenant, can Christians go into the Holy of Holies? The answer is actually yes, right? So in other words, the Old Testament, the old the old covenant, all right, had a temple. All right, that must ultimately be removed because the people of God, all of them need to be able to access the holy of holies directly. In other words, I mean it's not the importance of the Holy of Holies is not the fact that it is the Holy of Holies. The importance of the fact that the Holy of Holies is the fact that God is there. All right? So in other words, if you have a whole area dedicated to keeping the people away from God, right? that's what this was. Regulations, stratifications, separations. You've got this whole thing that exists to keep the people away from God. Because if they came too close, God would kill them. Because they were sinners. Then ultimately, if you want all the people going and getting straight to God, you must destroy it. So that the people can then directly access God Himself. Which is exactly what Jesus does for us. And is a major point within this book. But we've only just... We're, we're not done with this argument. It will, it will certainly continue on in the next few chapters. All right? So that's, that's what he's building to here. All right? And then we'll continue on in, uh, in 9, Lord willing, next time. Any questions? Any thoughts? Yes. Going back to verse 4, when you asked what we thought about that, um, the part that kind of stood out to me was according to the law, just at the end of the verse. Mm-hmm. So, I completely agree, if Jesus were here on earth, he couldn't be a priest because he's not from the right tribe. Mm-hmm. He's not from Levi, but also, gifts according offer gifts according to the law. The, the law did not prescribe killing humans as a remission for sins, which... It's true. So, if a priest at the time killed somebody instead of a dove or a goat, that would not be seen as a valid sacrifice. That's true. So, that's true. Yeah, you're, you're right. There, there is no... There's no allowance for human sacrifice according to the law. According to the law. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And in the New Covenant, there's only allowance for one. Because there's only the need for one. That's right. Is 
so human sacrifice, generally speaking, is, is forbidden, right? But in the New Covenant, the New Covenant sacrifice was a human sacrifice. Right? And he can't be given, I think it's essentially, tell me if I'm summarizing you correctly, and I think you're right. Jesus can't be the sacrifice for the can't be a priest and sacrifice people within the Aaronic priesthood because the Aaronic priesthood does not allow human sacrifice. So therefore, it must be a sacrifice for a different covenant. All right, Because priesthood and regulations related to sacrifice are a part of a covenant. If he sacrificed himself a human, then it must by necessity be a different covenant that he was working under. And now, you're absolutely right. I think it's totally right. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. reciprocity is why I think he's called the Lamb of God. As opposed to the Lamb of the Aaronic priesthood. Okay, yeah. Any other thoughts? Questions? Read, read forward. Continue reading. Right, You don't have to wait for us to discuss this. You will see, um, you know, verse 23, is necessary for the copies of the heavenly things. Right, He's going to continue to talk about that. Or in 10.11, and the, every priest stands daily at the service. All right? He continues to talk about it. Really, um, I mean, cl- the author's brain was clearly all right, very, um, it was just working off of the Old Testament then superseded, right? It was working off the Old Testament pattern, and then, oh, Jesus comes and changes all of these things. Um, and so, therefore, it's, he's got that on his brain, and I think is a good argument for why he's talking primarily to people who have that on their brain. Because if you're not really familiar with this stuff, you're going to go, I kind of see what you're saying, but I don't know why it's all that important, right? Um, but he is directly addressing... You who have been reading the Old Testament have been working off of that for very long. Here's where things have been changed. And I will talk about it by quoting those scriptures and making my logical argument. Which, for a Gentile who's never read the Old Testament, is, is not, it's just going to go one in one ear and one out, out the other. Okay, well let's be dismissed so that we can uh, have a little time of uh, fellowship before we go next door. Aaliyah, will you pray first please?